2: Another parliamentary year commences with a Queen's speech squarely aimed at the Conservatives' new electoral strongholds. I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly.
3: So today we needed a Queen's speech that rose to the scale of the moment, that rewarded the sacrifices of the last year and rebuilt the foundations. But instead, this Queen's speech merely papers over the cracks. It's packed with short-term gimmicks and distant promises.
2: Yesterday, Boris Johnson's government announced their legislative programme for a new parliamentary year in the annual Queen's speech, and it felt a little meh. Some are wondering what happened to the bold promises in the 2019 manifesto. We look at what was in it and what was left out. It comes as the dust settles over Labour's losses in last week's elections and over the fallout of a panicked shadow cabinet reshuffle, followed by a bitter briefing war. Can Keir Starmer recover in time for the next general election? We'll discuss later in the show. Plus, despite Boris Johnson's loud promise of reform, one major thing was missing from the Queen's speech, a plan for social care. After seeing successive governments fail on this front, we ask, why is it so difficult? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, a look at the Queen's speech. I'm joined by Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff. Lovely to have you on, Gabby. And um, were
1: you on the edge of your seat, uh, waiting for this Queen's speech? It's almost like Christmas. <laughs> But not quite as exciting, but it is at least, you know, Queen's Speech is always the government's to-do list. It shows their priorities and it's a chance to see if there's any substance, I suppose, to some pretty big promises Boris Johnson just made about succeeding where pretty much every previous government has failed and delivering equal prosperity and life chances across the country. This time, it was also interesting in terms of understanding how he sort of hopes to keep together quite a volatile new coalition of voters, I think. He's successfully won over a set of voters who aren't so comfortable in life, but can you hang on to them without upsetting the Tories traditional sort of middle class southern base? So that's, I suppose, what everyone was watching for this year is how do you keep that quite unstable compound together?
2: There are some offerings that that seem squarely aimed at the Conservatives' new electoral base. There's the skills pledges, technical education, more investment in towns, how much do you think those kinds of policies resonate with voters? Do they make a, a significant difference to their lives and do they
1: give the government credit for them? I think they resonate if they work. I mean, the Queen's speech looks like it's going for the sort of what you might call the new electoral sweet spot, which is economically left-wing but socially very right-wing, which is where you get the more sort of cultural-sounding stuff coming in. But some of the stuff on skills and training and jobs sounds like it was cut and pasted straight from a Gordon Brown budget in the noughties, really. I thought I recognise half these sentences but I think the emphasis on further education rather than higher education that is quite resonant fewer than half of kids go to university and we don't talk enough about about the half that don't and the idea of loans for retraining throughout life I think that's probably quite appealing the idea that you could get the course fees covered not just for university but for more vocational courses actually sounds pretty sensible in a labour market where lots of people are probably going to have to retrain because their old jobs might not exist soon but it Always comes down at the risk of sounding like a stuck record to is there actually the money to make this a reality? I mean, I'm so old, I've heard all these promises before from the last May government, and mind from Labour in the past. And I, I can't work out from this set of what makes it different enough this time that it's going to succeed where everything else has failed, at a time when there's some pretty stiff economic headwinds blowing the other way. And Boris Johnson is talking about trying to create jobs in the teeth of Brexit, which obviously hurting exporters, a pandemic, which is pretty much some kneecapped service industries, and rapid decarbonisation, which means, yes, there'll be new green jobs created, but also going to lose some jobs in polluting industries. So can you create the new ones fast enough to offset the ones that are going to be lost? And that's what I think, that's where the meat of it is going to come down to. That's where it's going to be judged on whether it's been successful or not. And there are some things that trade unions particularly are calling out that this
2: idea of an employment bill doesn't seem to be anywhere. There was supposed to be this this pledge to raise workplace protections after Brexit, safeguard gig economy workers. I mean that might be the sort of thing that really helps level up if, you know parts of the country, if people aren't you know exposed to terrible working conditions, which the pandemic has probably also brought into quite sharp focus. But again, you see, that's not something that's in this Queen's speech. And again, might be something that bristles a bit with the Conservatives, especially maybe Conservatives like, like Rishi Sunak, maybe.
1: Yeah, and I think there seems to be, I suspect the thinking there is you don't want to go into anything that um, employers see as more red tape or as restricting their ability to adapt to changing circumstances this is a very difficult time for a lot of industries that are trying to get back up off their knees after the pandemic and they i think they suspect they've judged that now is not the time for a whole load of new workers rights but as you say it's a big sort of gap in what's on offer especially as a lot of the proposals now you know are likely to bear fruit in the long term if you're talking about retraining now or you know about further education now it's quite a few years before you start to see the impact of that in terms of the jobs people are getting I know the next election feels a very long way at the moment but it's not that far off and if you want to show tangible progress between there and now you know education is a long slow process the other
2: really controversial part of which was in the Queens speech is the reforms to, to planning law that's something that'll be controversial with conservatives tell us a bit about them and why and why they're such
1: a um, an unpopular proposal for some of Johnson's own MPs
4: mm.
1: I mean the real opposition to any government with an 80 80- plus majority is internal if we're honest. Labour hasn't got the numbers to sort of inflict any surprises on you and it's only a revolt on your own side that can bring you down when you have the kind of majority Boris Johnson does. So in practice the bills that run into trouble over the next year are going to be the ones that upset Tory MPs and the rush to rip up planning laws think is top of that list. This bill basically establishes that once an area is designated for development and that will be a whole new row in itself you know which areas are and which aren't that's, house building is pretty much nailed on to happen with very limited powers for councils and locals to object. And I'm sure it would be really popular with first-time buyers and renters because you know it is the kind of expansion in house building that we need. But for more established Tory voters, rural and shire seats, they hate it because to them all it means is whopping great profits for property developers and any old estate knocked up any old where with scant regard for whether you're actually creating places people want to live. And the complaint you always hear is they build the houses but not the school places, not the bus routes, not the stuff that makes life actually... Work for the people who are moving into an area. It's interesting to see Theresa May emerge as uh, spearheading some resistance to this on the backbenches. She's picked her bites very carefully with Boris in the past, and that's one to watch. But it's whether also they make some kind of alliance with with Labour. I mean, Lucy Powell, the new Shadow Housing Spokesman, was talking yesterday in quite interesting terms about you know this builds on uh, the results of an experiment in Manchester, which is not the sort of place that you imagine. You know, we think of NIMBY voters as being you know in, in Surrey, but. She said um, in Manchester, you know, this has led to sort of development in some concentrated in labour areas, but not in Tory seats, whether that's the right place for it to be or not. You know, there's a clear sort of shuffle the disruption somewhere else kind of thing going on, she was suggesting. And and also, again, this sense of creating artificial communities that aren't necessarily where people want to live and, and making a lot of profit for property developers, but, but not necessarily doing much good to anyone else. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any common cause between Labour and the Tories on that. Some of the more controversial proposals in the Queen's speech, again, they, they seem, I'm
2: not sure that they'd be my priorities coming out of a, a pandemic, but they clearly are Boris Johnson's, are plans to limit free speech at universities, limit protests, and others that are expected to provoke opposition is, is making a photo ID mandatory for all voters at elections. And there's kind of a, a theme here, isn't there, that that, that I can see anyway.
1: Yeah, there's a theme of neutering opposition, certainly, I think. And that's that's worrying with the government with this kind of majority, particularly voter ID. I mean, as, as the Guardian reports, you know, up to two million people don't have the right kind of photo ID now. And they're most likely to be poorer people from ethnic minority backgrounds. So who are we disenfranchising here? You know, and I think that is quite an alarming development. Some of the measures that you mentioned seem to be more catering to, you know, keeping a culture war ticking over on the side and often solving problems that that no one is particularly convinced exists. And it's particularly of the free speech and universities one. If you're a student union, first of all, it's incredibly rare that people are no-platformed. Secondly, if you're a student union and you don't want to be sued for no-platforming someone, well, the easiest way to ensure that happens is just not invite anyone controversial in the first place. So there's an incentive here to just play it very safe if anything you could end up with less diversity of views being expressed um, which is the opposite of what government intends as for the idea that no platform speakers could sue for compensation I mean I'm not sure how generous the government thinks student union speaker fees are but in my experience you're sort of lucky if they pay your train ticket I don't think there's going to be a great deal to sue for mm. so all of that points to you know something that's basically just been bumped out there to, to satisfy a particular part of the Tory base that would like to think this is a huge problem, rather than tackling some of the very real problems <laughs> that the country actually has at the moment. And I think there are also some of those measures seem to me very much aimed at dividing the Labour Party and sort of creating political rows rather than solving problems. That's particularly true of the, the Bill on Protest, I think, which has already been very controversial during the last session. If I was being a cynic, I'd, I'd sort of wonder if half the point of that is that this is an issue that forces Keir Starmer into some awkward choices. You know, does he want to be the sort of Labour leader who defends the right to radical protest or is he the sort of more establishment, don't frighten the horses figure, former Director of Public Prosecutions, who's tough on crime and all the rest of it and who couldn't possibly condone the kind of clashes with police we saw in Bristol earlier this year as a result of the Kill the Brill process. So I think these are part in part about you know, painting Starmer is on the wrong side of a popular argument and the government is on the right side of a popular argument, whether or not that argument has any actual merit.
2: Just one thing that sort of struck me about the, the photo ID for elections. I mean, not the gerrymander. you know, these kind of things are, should be good in any sense, but it struck me as, as interesting when the Conservatives are trying to expand their voting base into into people with with fewer resources, less money, And Labour seem to be expanding their base into into graduates, people who are far more likely maybe to have driving licences, passports, have, you know, easily use or easily get those kinds of
1: documents. Could it backfire? It potentially could. Um, I think the biggest problem... With it, I mean, I, I think that you'd have to say as well that the people who are most likely to be disenfranchised by it, there's also quite a big overlap with people who are very likely at the moment not to vote. Yeah, uh, it may not be that there's you know that there's a huge amount of people deterred from voting who aren't already deterred from voting. If you see what I mean, but I think there's a principle here which is that you don't mess around. <laughs> with the electoral system for anything other than very good reason, you know, and whether or not that backfires on the Tories or doesn't backfire on the Tories, there's a principle here, which is, you know, you don't use a large majority to rig the system in your favour. And I think the next thing to watch for, we also like to see um, government abolishing the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which makes it easier for Johnson to call an election at a time that suits him rather than on a set date it's about consolidating the grip on power again but the big one to watch out for i think over the next couple of years is boundary reform is changes to the shape and size of constituencies which could also make it easier for the tories to win again and again this is the sort of thing you can do with that kind of majority that's you know we are yet again just seeing the results of that disastrous 2019 election result unfold that's what happens The government has the power to make the rules and there's not an awful amount the opposition can do about it. Last thing, that
2: Boris Johnson has finally seems to have announced that there will be a public inquiry into the government's handling of COVID, that the timeline will be within... The next year. We, he said it would start within this session. That should mean a year. Will he be nervous about it or will he be counting on it being such
1: a lengthy inquiry that it may not even report before the next election? If he's not nervous. I think he probably ought to be. I mean, there, there are two sort of danger points with inquiries. One is the actual report, you know, the findings, what do they say? But also the hearings, you know, when people are giving evidence in public all sorts of things coming out during the process of the inquiry, you know, that can be as damaging as, as the findings itself. An inquiry is obviously very welcome and necessary. It's something the Guardian's campaign for. But the risk for Boris Johnson is that it reopens old wounds. Right now, people seem in a very forgiving mood thanks to the vaccine, the prospect of life returning to normal. We're all feeling a bit more optimistic. That boosted him in last week's elections. But obviously, the hearings may dredge up some... It takes us right back to the sort of the dark times, really, and the missed opportunities to lock down earlier and, and save more lives. I wonder whether part of the calculation is, firstly, that this was inevitable; inevitably have to do it at some point. But secondly, Dominic Cummings apparently now seems prepared to spill quite a lot of the beans anyway. He's already made some pretty shocking revelations about the Prime Minister's reluctance to have a second lockdown. And we can probably expect more of the same when he testifies to MPs investigating the handling of COVID uh, later this month. So perhaps, perhaps he's just concluded it's all going to come out eventually. So better to have some control over the process and a formal process rather than a sort of procession of aggravated former employees coming out and telling us all of it anyway. Gabby Hinsliff, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you.
2: After the break, we'll have a long look at the Labour Party and where it goes next. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Last week, Labour suffered a disappointing result in the local elections. A defeat in Hartlepool was a particular blow to the party. And although there were victories too, they performed strongly in Wales and in mayoral elections, even in some former Tory strongholds. By Sunday, many within the Labour Party were too distracted to notice some of the better results coming in, as rumours swirled of potential shadow cabinet sackings and a leader at war with his deputy. In the end, the so-called reshuffle was slightly anticlimactic. The Shadow Chancellor, Annalise Dodds, was replaced by the Shadow Cabinet Minister, Rachel Reeves. Dodds takes over as party chair for Angela Rayner, whose allies had accused the leader of trying to pin the blame on her for Labour's rocky election performance. Sensing the incoming wrath from many in the party, though, the top brass decided to throw positions at Rayner, who is now Shadow Cabinet Office Minister, Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work, and Shadow First Secretary of State, It's not something to easily fit in a caption. So now things have cooled down. Where next for Labour? What does the party stand for? And how can they unite their liberal, urban, progressive base with Leave voters in former Red Wall seats? Heather Stewart spoke to Alva Ray, political correspondent of The New Statesman, and Ellie May O'Hagan, the director of the centre-left think tank, the Centre for Labour and Social Studies.
6: Alva, in advance of... Super Thursday, as no one except political journalists were calling it. You wrote a piece, didn't you, about Hartlepool, saying that Labour shouldn't kind of get overhung up on Hartlepool. We shouldn't read too much into it. I mean, it felt in the aftermath as if that was very much what happened. But looking across the board at the results, what do you think we should make of them?
4: Well, they were they were definitely disappointing for Labour, but they were clearly a much more mixed picture than the initial result from Hartlepool would and lead you to think. And that's, I think, part of the problem that the Hartlepool result was the worst result for Labour in all of those elections and it came first. But I think, you know, Labour did perform very well in Wales, which I think is really important to note from the outset because Labour managed to hold on to a lot of seats in, in Wales that, that were leave voting and did go to the Conservatives at the last general election. So I think it was a much more mixed bag. But unfortunately, that has been just overtaken by an entire narrative of Labour in crisis. And so when really good results were coming in, in certain mayoralties, for example, that was overshadowed by, um, obviously, announcements that Keir Starmer was sacking Angela Rayner instead.
6: And Ellie May, what, what did you make of Hartlepool and of Labour's response to it, I suppose?
7: I probably would disagree that Hartlepool was less of something to worry about. I think it was pretty bad. I'm usually a pessimist um, politically, and it was worse than I was expecting. And I think it speaks to a sort of long term decline of the party, really, that was around before Corbyn became leader and has sort of resumed, you know, they obviously accelerated between 2017 and 2019 and has sort of been resumed under Starmer. But actually, I think the most telling and important thing about Hartlepool was not the result, but was the sort of botched response to it by the party, which suggested a sort of a leadership that didn't really know what it was doing and that was sort of in panic mode and that kind of undid a lot of the reasons that Keir Starmer has sort of put forward for why he should be leader which is that he's sort of offering 2017 Corbynism in a suit is what he what he ran on and his response was was very incompetent and a bit all over the place and I think that to me is more important and more indicative of the trouble Labour is in than the actual by-election because it's sort of I felt like what you were seeing after Hartlepool was was a sort of a party getting into a bunker and sort of alienating everyone. I mean, sacking Angela Rayner was a mad decision. I think that was really worrying for me.
6: And Alva, that man, Dominic Cummings, popped up, didn't he, in the wake of the Hartlepool by-election to say that there was a realignment that, I mean, he claims credit for it. He thinks vote leave achieved it, but between sort of fairly left-wing positions on sort of NHS spending and public services and things like that, and pretty right wing sort of authoritarian positions on other issues, sort of and flogerman, anti-crime kind of stance. That's kind of where Boris Johnson's government is plonking itself, isn't it? And that's quite hard for Labour, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I think it's really, really difficult. I think beyond the the obvious things that they could have done better, you know, not patronise people in Hartlepool with a candidate who had been a an MP in another constituency who had been voted out, who had supported Remain in Parliament. I think beyond those things, what I was hearing when I was in Hartlepool was... This real feeling of having been let down by politics in general and the landscape of Hartlepool, like Ellie touched on, was really testament to that decline. The magistrates' court closed, critical care services at the hospital closed, police cells closed. I think this this combination of feeling just let down by politics and neglected combined with this long Labour history meant that people in Hartlepool just fancied a change. The magic shifting of the Conservative campaign in 2019 and what we saw again in Hartlepool is that Boris Johnson's Conservatives have managed to pitch themselves as the change candidates. Um, I find that Labour kept apologising when when I was there and, and wasn't so good at, at making the case of, of where these cuts and the root cause of the problems in Hartlepool was really coming from. You know, for example, that magistrate's court, that's, that closure is a direct Conservative government decision from the Ministry of Justice. The, the only way that you even start to tackle it is, is by thinking more precisely probably about what the Conservatives are doing as well rather than just thinking about what Labour needs to be doing in isolation.
6: Yeah, Keith Starmer said we need to spend less time talking to ourselves, didn't he? Although sort of in the grip of this. He then spent quite a long time talking to Angela Rayner, it seemed, over the 24 hours after, <laughs> after that. But um, Ellie May, let's try and sort of cheer ourselves up a bit and look at some of those successes. What, what can Labour learn from, for example, what happened in Wales, where they're the incumbents and they did well?
7: Well, I actually spent the whole evening, well, much of the evening of the election results, watching the Welsh coverage because it was so much cheerier <laughs> than, the, than the sort of English coverage. And I think it's, I think a lot of it was the pandemic response. I think that has distinguished Wales as a sort of a nation with its own politics and identity to Welsh people much more i think that mark drakeford i'm not sure so i'll confess here i've i've only ever seen him do long interviews in welsh so i'm not sure what he sounds like in english but in welsh he's a much clearer communicator than kit starmer and i think labor welsh labor has been in government for so long they have managed they like recently they've managed to do certain things they're not huge transformative things but they've made some like modest change to life in wales for the better all of these things have created good conditions for labor and what i would say is that people vote for them they don't vote for them thinking this party is going to change my life this party is wonderful but they don't resent voting for them they don't it's something slightly more dialed up than just kind of heavy hearted habit which is what i think a lot of labor voters in england feel is that they do it because they don't like the tories but they don't at the moment but they don't particularly feel
6: excited about doing it Hmm. Alva, what about Andy Burnham, another incumbent who did extremely well? Should Keir Starmer be worried about his success almost or other things he can learn
4: there? Good question. I think he should be worried by his success or more precisely, I think maybe he should be a little bit worried by what the impact is going to be of this reshuffle and whether we are just now going to constantly be in a situation where there's leadership speculation because he has slightly undermined his own authority. Andy Burnham did off the back of that win in a very typically Andy Burnham charming way, did just make it incredibly clear that he still wants to be Labour leader. I think that he really is seen as a as a potential Labour candidate. I think I mean clearly Andy Burnham's a really experienced politician. I think people forget that he he was health secretary. He has a really long record of experience. But also I think that there are kind of trickier lessons for Keir Starmer because in some ways I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing, but Andy Burnham does kind of pitch himself as the candidate against London and That's not something that's really viable for the Labour Party as a whole. It works very well in Manchester and Andy Burnham's standoff against Boris Johnson during the pandemic over pandemic funding was very successful. But I think there is already a trend of Labour being seen to hate the people who have actually stuck with it and are still voting for it who are you know younger progressives in urban areas and so on I think that that wouldn't work overall and so there are probably lots of lessons for Labour in terms of what a good communicator Andy Burnham is how clearly he points to his successes in for example reducing homelessness in Manchester but I think that there are also more sort of tricky strategic lessons there And Ellie
6: May, some of those young progressives seem to have flooded to the Green Party, don't they? The Greens did extremely well. How much of a problem is that for Labour?
7: So basically, one of the good things for Labour is that they started to pick up seats in Tory strongholds like Cambridge and Tunbridge Wells and even some seats in Surrey. But the problem that they have is exactly what you've identified, which is that, you know, the vote in those places may well be split between the Liberal Democrats and the Greens. And when it comes to sort of young progressives, you know, there is this understanding now that Labour's heartlands, if you like, are in sort of urban areas of, you know, that have younger, more diverse populations that are working in precarious work. And what I would say is that Ian Duncan Smith, like, that was the sort of real nadir of the modern Tory party. And and he never slagged off the Tories' base in the same way that Labour does. You know, like... Labour's habit of openly insulting what I think is now its new base of voters is just absolutely bizarre to me.
6: What do you mean by that, Ellie May? Give us an, give us an example. What kind of thing do you mean?
7: You know, so Starmer said today, I'm not going to have rallies of the faithful. I'm going to go around and listen to people, you know, which is obviously like a slight on the rallies that really energised people during Corbyn's leadership. And, you know, as I said, I used to be a strategic communications consultant. and I was trained by Anat Schenker Azurio, who did a lot of work in the U.S. elections, um, helping flip seats to the Democrats. Anat always says that you need to energize your base because they are the people who will go out and spread the good news of, of you. The right know this. The Republican, conservatives, you know, they never insult their base. They always pander to them. They always give them things that they want.
6: Alva, what does the reshuffle, which was obviously somewhat less radical than Build, what does that tell us about about the message that Keir Starmer wants to give going forward?
4: Uh, Good question. I mean, as you say, it wasn't that radical. And the only really significant change was swapping Annalisa Dodds for Rachel Reeves, which was a long time coming. I wrote before that happened, when it seemed very likely that it might happen, that if Keir Starmer did end up doing that swap, he would be slightly admitting that he has a problem, which is that he himself is somewhat lacking in strategy and verve, and that he's turning to Rachel Reeves, who's to his right politically, to help him, really. The big lesson from this is that I think the the shadow cabinet reshuffle was a bit of a strategic misfire. We come out of this reshuffle and out of these elections with Keir Starmer in a much weaker position, and a lot of MPs and shadow cabinet members feeling, I think, quite unloved and lacking in confidence.
6: Yeah, that certainly chimes with what people were saying to me in the in the long wait on Sunday for news where there were lots of people, you know, wondering whether they were going to keep their jobs or not. We, ne- we need to draw it to a close. But Ellie May, can I ask you just one more? Look, we always look at local election results and try and work out what they mean for the prospects of a general election. Can Labour possibly win in 2024 or perhaps 2023?
7: Absolutely. You know, I remember when Ed Miliband lost in 2015 and there was like all of these sort of doom mongering pieces about how the Labour Party was done for and how it could never come back from that. And then two years later, it got into the position of gaining seats. And I think we underestimate, you know, how quickly things change. I even remember think pieces about how the Tories were in a permanent state of decline in 2010 You know, Attlee, Labour's sort of greatest ever leader, possibly like aside from Blair, and if anyone is listening to this from the left of the party, before you get angry, I just mean in terms of victory, not policy. Attlee was not a natural leftist, but he sort of was pushed that way by people that he worked with and by the material circumstances of the era. So I do think there is the possibility for Keir to be this kind of Attlee figure, this sort of transformative figure in the party, and what better time to do it than... After the pandemic, in the middle of a climate crisis, the foundations are there for Labour to transform this country for the better forever. So he, and he could be that figure. But I think what it requires is boldness, decisiveness and a clear, resonant story about the country that we live in, about who Labour are as a party, who he is as a leader and what the country will look like under a Labour government that he leads. And that will make all the difference.
2: Heather Stewart speaking to Alva Ray and Ellie May O'Hagan there. Now for decades, successive governments promised and then failed to reform it. Nevertheless, Boris Johnson on his first day as Prime Minister boasted that he would quote, fix the problem of social care that every government has flunked for the last 30 years. Ministers like Michael Gove and Matt Hancock have been adamant this past week that they will follow through on that plan, with Gove suggesting that we will see something by the end of the year but it's one of those cases where we'll believe it when we see it. So what is the problem of social care? And what makes it so difficult to fix it? A recent report conducted by Engage Britain asked exactly that question. And so on Monday ahead of the Queen's speech, our political correspondent Peter Walker spoke to the Director of Advocacy at Engage Britain, the former political editor of the Times, Frances
5: Elliott. Frances, you've seen social care From kind of both sides of both writing about it, and then now from a kind of policy point of view. But one of the things I found very interesting in this report for Engage Britain you've just done on social care is that quite a lot of people don't really know what we mean when we talk about social care. I mean, the the NHS is understood by everyone, but if you were to explain to a voter what social care is in this context, what exactly is it? Well, social
3: care is the the term that the bureaucracy, for its own convenience, heaps on those services that we deliver to adults, both working age adults and those uh, in retirement age, who need medical and personal care for conditions which are not classically described as treatable. So you're ameliorating and facilitating, as much as possible, independent living with conditions which aren't going to get better.
5: And in terms, I mean, this is something that politicians have been promising to tackle for a long time. There's a uh, timeline at the start of the report that you wrote, which basically goes back 20 years and nothing really gets done. And one of the issues which the report says is it kind of falls between the cracks because this is simultaneously a central government thing, but it's actually delivered by a lot of councils. Is this one of the issues that is just too bitty and too complex?
3: It is. I mean, it is partly that no one part of government has ever truly owned social care. It straddles very awkwardly the, the current kind of architecture of the British state. But that's not that's not the only one. I mean and that that that, that disconnect has consequences for for the delivery and, and makes it patchy. It has consequences for political accountability. But I, I think is only one of a number of kind of unfortunate characteristics of this particular public policy. That has made it so intractable.
5: I mean, what what are the other reasons? Is this partly that people just don't know what social care is? Because the NHS is quite easy to understand. Yeah, well, you start from
3: the question of what is the problem with social care? You know, what, what, what is what politicians all have a slightly different answer to that. And for some, the problem with social care is that as the system is currently set up, if you get cancer, your treatment is entirely treated for by the NHS and you never have to pay a penny. Whereas if you get dementia, you will end up you know, potentially losing your house to pay for your care. So there's a sort of fundamental iniquity at the heart of it. And then for some, the problem is the losing your house bit. For some, it is that if you don't provide adequate social care, it becomes an issue for the NHS. So. If you see social care only as a system problem that is only a problem because it impacts on the rest of the NHS, then you know, I, I would argue that you are baking in failure to how you answer that because it's so much more than that. And, and then, as you say, I mean, uh, while well, all the politicians started from a slightly different place on on what they thought the problem was, they were all pretty unified about why they had failed, which is that at the moment of your great solution, and this is something that Johnson will find, you find that people actually, most people think that social care is free at the point of use, like the rest of the NHS or like the NHS. And so you are introducing them to a problem just at the moment. And then as soon as you're into any solutions, you're into winners and losers. So people, A, don't know that there's a problem and B, then find out that, you know, likely to be amongst the losers of this particular solution to it because it needs more money.
5: Is, is there much kind of thought amongst politicians in England and Wales certainly about the kind of equivalent of a national care service something that would be completely free at the point of service but would involve a lot of taxation is that is that on the cards at all?
3: National care service is being talked about in Scotland but it's not what you think it is even in Scotland which introduced free personal care in 2002. The national care service really amounts to putting some meaning behind ending any kind of postcode lottery up there so it's a sort of an equivalent set of standards rather than you know Uniforms, you know, central employers, central contracts, central command and control, you know, predict and provide provision. Nobody is talking, I think, possibly Andy Burnham, but nobody really else is talking about that kind of massive statist solution. But obviously, one one way of sorting out social care or funding social care would be to move to a straight general taxation um, issue. But then you see Then you quickly get into another of the strange whirlpools that have made this so tricky, which is that, is it right that people who are working now should pay for a benefit that was never in the deal when the people who are going to, on the the whole, the retirees who are going to be benefiting from it didn't pay for it in taxes? So there's a sort of intergenerational fairness issue if you go down the general taxation route which is why Burnham was attracted to what became the death tax and other kind of forms of compulsory social insurance as a sort of transition method. But his 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 end destination, certainly when he was health secretary, was certainly going to be a, free at the point of use, equivalent to the National Health Service, but reached over you know, some time, 20, 30, 40 years.
5: And I guess if this wasn't politically perilous enough... Then MPs and ministers thinking about this can only have to look back to the 2017 general election when Theresa May had a plan for social care. Has that scarred people ever since?
3: I think it's absolutely deeply scarred um, the Conservative mindset. Uh, I mean, it was really one of the great unforced errors of modern politics to to introduce a policy in as contested and as difficult a field as social care in the middle of an election campaign. It seems insane even to even as we kind of remember it now. But Johnson has been consistently bullish and talked a good game about doing this. He he said um, famously on the steps of Downing Street that he had a, a a plan that we have prepared. He said in 2020 that he wouldn't flunk the, the, the challenge of social care that had defeated politicians for the last 30 years. My strong suspicion is that um, it'll be very much... Uh, very much a placeholder if I that, um, in, in, that in the Queen's speech. speech. Yeah, I kind of we will, will get back to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your social care policy is still loading.
5: Is, is that something that a government can, you know, that they presumably can't do it that much longer? That there, that there has to be at least be the beginnings of a plan before too long, surely?
3: I, I This is where I wrestle with the cynicism of my former trade, Peter. <laughs> um, what is the real... Political disbenefit of not doing it well, you know, I guess that it is, you know, very embarrassing given the, the previous rhetoric from Johnson that it, it has become a kind of slight political virility test. You know, mm-hmm. if you're if you're in government with your huge majority, Mr. Johnson and your renewed mandate, what are you in this for if not to take on some of these, you know, tricky issues and d- deliver sustainable solutions to them but of course you don't do that if your starting point is only that you are only choosing social you're, you're treating social care as a thing as if people understand what social care is and conform to the you know to your Westminster Whitehall view of it mm. but you only think that social care is important because you know you really care about the NHS and you don't want something impacting it you know what we are saying is that spend some time actually finding out what people value and want from these set of policies from their um, a decent old age or the nobility of giving people who otherwise, you know, may not have survived in, in previous generations, meaningful and good lives, and that that is something to be celebrated and enjoyed as the fruits of a civilised society. You know, start from that point by actually talking to people and helping them design what the solutions may be. You won't get the solution to this really difficult problem by going around the same loops that you've gone before. We've tried all of the possible ways around them and all of them come back to the same you know, fundamental kind of jarring problem that we've outlined thus far.
5: And and if the government, this is one final question, if the government's kind of first response to that was to have a minister to give you a call and say, oh, Francis, you seem to know um, an awful lot about this. <laughs> what do you think we should do? then I mean is there actually any kind of roadmap you could present to them or is it just a kind of process as much as uh, anything else
3: well you can't simultaneously say this to the people and then say oh but you know here's what they have said we I mean I'm afraid we are organizationally in a position where we're, we're not at that moment where we can say this is what we've done but I think what I would say is start the conversation now lay it out do try to to take this out of as much as possible the normal kind of Westminster dialogue, and you know start by asking some fundamental questions about you know what do we mean when we talk about social care you know and mm-hmm. what people really value about it and what might a good old age look like.
5: That's brilliant, Francis Elliott. Thank you very much. Okay, Peter. Nice to speak to you again.
2: And that is all from us this week. Now, as we mark The Guardian's 200th birthday this month, there is lots of unmissable anniversary journalism for you to enjoy. You can look forward to special commemorative supplements, essays, opinion pieces, fascinating Guardian live events and, of course, some extra special podcasts. Make sure to listen to Politics Weekly next week when Heather Stewart convenes a roundtable of former political editors at The Guardian. Also, check out Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra. In a week where violence broke out once again on the streets of East Jerusalem between Israeli police forces and Palestinian protesters, Jonathan Friedland speaks to former envoy to the Middle East, Ambassador Dennis Ross. The pair discuss US policy in the region and the many, many missed opportunities to salvage peace. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Gabby Hinsliff, Heather Stewart, Alva Ray, Ellie Mae O'Hagan, Peter Walker and Francis Elliott. The producer is Yonin Gafan, I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening.
1: For more great podcasts from The Guardian,
4: just go to theguardian.com podcasts.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
7: Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine and I am an all-inclusive addict.